Hello, welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. In this episode, I will look at uh, Magic Inc. Magic Inc. I think finishes up our 1940 coverage of Heinlein stories. Um, I'm pretty sure that's the last one, um, but we'll see. Um, I haven't been that the best with the chronological approach. <clears throat> but uh, that said, this was published in 1940 in Unknown, so it's not one of the astounding stories, and it really wasn't in a fit for astounding because it is a, a fantasy story. But I think this, in many ways, kind of explores many of the same issues that that Heinlein was interested in early in his career that he explored through science fiction like politics technology uh, work uh, institutional power uh, in many ways it reminded me of the role roads must roll in that it's dealing with like an integral you know X sector of the economy that's kind of indispensable and then how they can gain power at the expense of other sectors of of the economy kind of through through unionization or monopolization now it was later uh published in a like a fix-up sort of novel i guess or a short a really tiny short story collection called waldo and magic ink and which literally just that two stories uh a science fiction one and then magic ink um so it may have been changed since uh, then. I just listened to the audiobook version of, of Magic Inc., not, not printing out the whole thing. Um, anyways, what to say about this story? So at first I'm kind of like, this doesn't quite make much sense to me. It's kind of the same problem, I, I suppose, with with fantasy in general that uses magic. Is If, if magic's real, it's demonstrable. It, it, it can be studied by specialists. It can somehow be understood. Um, it's not magic, is it? It's just like a reflection of, uh, it's like becoming scientifically understood at that point, right? Um, it's no longer supernatural. Magic works in pre-modern periods in which there's a, not an understanding of the of how the natural world fully works. And there's spaces of things misunderstood or incongruities between what's understood as science and and things that actually happen in the universe, right? So, like, your scientific vision of the world, such as it just doesn't, it can't explain earthquakes, so you throw in gods or something, or you throw in magic or wizards or something like that. Uh, but once things are understood, and then you don't need magic anymore. Um, this magic here seems pretty, to follow certain rules, it seems to be pretty well understood. Like, there are demons, there are mandrakes, there are witches, there are squirrels, schools of thought in, within magic. There's not really an explanation of how it works, but it's, but even that we get a bit of in the story. So it's, it's close to the technological system of the age, right? It's like if we went to an alien civilization and they had an entirely different kind of technological foundation, it might appear magical to us, right? Isn't that, is that the Arthur C. Clarke idea? An advanced technology will just seem like magic to us. Um, but to the people who understand it, it's not magic, right? So I guess this is the problem with Harry Potter too, in a way, or any, any 
effort to to have like a well-developed magical system if once it gets well-developed enough it really becomes natural it becomes understood it becomes just uh, a part of the natural world that gets cut off and called magic by people now that might be the point too and that we have uh, a specialist who access this and and lay claim to it as magic and and kind of and claim to have special privilege about it and that empowers them that gives them authority that gives them financial power it gives them clout politically all those things because they're able to set it aside it's like they're they're specialists essentially technological specialists and their knowledge isn't freely available to all so at first i was reading this and i'm like i don't really buy this i now would be interesting is if in this world where magic is in charge, you have like in, in like technology challenging it directly, technology and science challenging it directly, and there might be a little bit of that in the story too. But then it, you just invert the normal story of magic intersecting into into our world, uh, disrupting it with the unexplained. Instead, you just have uh, you know you have magic as the standard system, the understood, and technology comes in as the thing that's not understood, and again run as you would expect by a small cadre of specialists and, and masters. So let's jump into the story a little bit. So our our main character, our, our narrator, is this guy Archie, Archie uh, Fraser, and he's a like a construction contractor or something, and. Um, he can't really use, he's more on the technological side of things, I guess, because he, um, he uses a special kind of metal that doesn't really interact with magic. Um, but, um, things like wood, fabrics, things like that, plastics, I suppose, anything that's, that's kind of alive, uh, in some way, organic can be, can be just created out of nowhere by magicians. So most uh, most businesses rely on magicians as their essentially their production staff. So they're a working class in that sense. They're the creators of production. I think a Marxist uh, might have a lot of fun with uh, this story and its kind of model of production because essentially the magicians are, are kind of a working class here because they are the ones producing value. They're not the only ones. They're still like... Uh, regular labor because not everything can be manipulated by magic but most things can and if they can they, they will use magic because it's easy to do so like clothing is a great example of that clothing can just sort of be created by magicians and it doesn't last forever but you know the the price point is low enough that people you know even now people don't wear their clothes for more than a year or two anyways right in in the developed world so you just buy new stuff um, and that's his friend. His friend is is kind of involved in the clothing business. It's like one season um, clothing is is that. And there's a very specialist. There are mediums. There's all you would ex- kind of the whole gamut of of magicians doing different work throughout there throughout the world. Now Archie is. Um, kind of going to be the foil against which this magical civilization is is being challenged. Especially the power of the magicians. He's not really necessarily... To, uh, he is sort of opposed to magic, but it's not... Um, he doesn't have like an uh, uh, irrational fear of it. He uh, sees it more in terms of, of power in society 
and the authority of, of, of a group. So this is why it reminds me of the Rolls Must Road. And there it was the engineers and the technicians of the roads that were so crucial to the economy that they were indispensable and therefore could like achieve a revolution against the society. That's sort of what we have here with the magicians, that they have so much authority, they have so much clout just in their productive potential and how key they are to the economy. Every business almost, pretty much every business relies on magicians to some degree. And magicians can sort of charge what they want. Um, that that gives them the, the the chance, the ability to take over, right? Now, in this, though, we also have the question of, like, corporations. And, the, and that's where the title comes from, Magic Inc., is actually a corporation that is attempting to really consciously use the, ex, the power of magicians as exclusive to others as their way to essentially take over society, right? Um, now, again, you could replace this with any kind of technician or scientific knowledge and have a very similar Heinlein story. And I think we've seen this before with uh, his narratives on corporations, on, on you know, you know, I think of like, uh, let there be light or lifeline, or as I said, the, the roads must roll. These are all stories that really smell like this one in, in a way, especially in the tension between society at large and the needs of society at large. Um, and the needs of individual entrepreneurs versus that of a, of a powerful um, sector, an indispensable powerful sector of society, a functionalist. It's a functionalist argument in this way, but it just takes mad judicians instead of engineers. Now, our main character's uh, problem, uh, and this really moves the plot forward, is he gets uh, basically hit up by a magical, magical racket. of sorts um and they they use their magic basically to to coerce him because he's outside kind of the, the the needs of the magicians and he gets kind of terrorized his business and his workers and his construction projects and things get terrorized by by witchcraft of various types including things getting destroyed while he can't use it to make things uh the magic certainly can destroy what he's uh what he's uh what he can work on so they eventually they go see this miss jennings she's like another major character in the novel who's a like an ancient uh prognosticator which she does many different things but uh they go to her for like consultation and help um and and she is able to provide some some aid to him and provide some protection and like the villain here is this guy named Biddle who is is like you first see him as like a street magician and then he ends up uh, being the head of this magic ink so what they are basically is like an employment service for for magicians right um and and here's where like the, the real plot takes off and here's where the story gets interesting because I, I wasn't too into it at the beginning of the story um, but it really became interesting when it became like a like a political drama of sorts, because there's uh, the state legislature is uh, passing a bill that would basically like regulate magicians. Now, maybe this sounds good, right? This is one of those things. Yeah, we should. They seem to have a lot of power. We should regulate them. But actually, this regulation actually would have just monopolized the power of magicians under under Magic Inc., right, who's ran, run by this guy named Ditworth, and he's associated with this Biddle guy. They're kind of all in, in cahoots. And, and that's what it's about. 
if the magicians can become a monopoly power, they'll basically be in the same situation as the engineers in the roads must roll, where if they become indispensable and basically they can control society itself. So uh, they go then to basically try to stop this law. So it becomes kind of a political drama where they are lobbying the legislatures. And we get some really interesting scenes where we see how magic and the reality of magic interweaves itself into politics. Like there's a little subplot here about a anti-magic politicians who know they can't really stop ma magic, but they play like culture war games against magicians, you know, pass meaningless laws or laws that will pass the legislature, but never pass the Senate. So they can go back to your constituents and say, say, we're against magic. So there seems to be a populist protest against the power of the magicians. And that's alive and well in the in the legislature. Now, their lobbying efforts seem to be a success. They seem to be going well. Um, but then, so they're out at the bar waiting for this, the, 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 the sessions about to end, the final bills that need to be passed are being passed. And then while they're like at the bar, right, waiting to celebrate the defeat of this bill, which would have given these magicians all this, this clout in society, they, they get news that it had passed. And it passed as like a rider on one of these central bills, like some appropriations bill that had to pass. It got snuck in. And Ditworth um, is what's behind this, apparently. Now, they, they see him at one point pass by uh, Amir and see he doesn't reflect. So he's like, I, I usually thought vampire, but no, he's like a demon. So uh, we have all these demons. And, we, and in the later part of the story, we get kind of a geography of this realm. We got a bit of it in the congressional session too, where um, the state legislature session where we see like, there is a, like these gnomes, these dwarves underground. And they are like, there's questions about like property rights. Cause if you own the land on top and you got the dwarves down below, who owns the rights? Cause in, I guess our conception of ownership, you own all the way to the center of the earth in theory, right? Like if I own land and I find oil on it, that oil belongs to me, right? But you have people living down there who don't want to be you know who seem to have some rights to their homes and the land that they're on there so there's uh, the question of like how do you have property rights when you have a, a three-dimensional civilization i don't know how this works for now with a. Uh, I don't think there's many people living underground but you you might in theory have like floating cities at some point and and what would that mean for people who who own land i mean does property rights go up into sky? I think you have some rights uh, for the space over the land you create. But I think that really hasn't been worked out or tested yet. These are like stateless areas, or these are areas where sovereignty uh, is is already being kind of disputed by states, right? Like, how far does your airspace go over your, over your country? So that's some interesting stuff here. But we get a bigger geography when we find out that there's demons and there's like a hell, essentially, and there's Lucifer and Beelzebub and Succubi all kind of ruling. There's like 7 million or is it 7 billion? I think it's 7 million demons of various stripes. So they're somehow behind this, too. But anyways, the law passes. And the result of this law then is the... Um, is the growing power of magicians who signed up with Magic Inc., who get their employment through them. Those that don't can't really get their license. But that doesn't really matter because that 
makes the the magicians who are part of the circle not like miss jennings she's someone who seems to be outside of it so she, that's why she's on the side of our heroes here um it gives them an even greater power because it reduces the supply of magical labor so they're essentially a union that can strength have the stranglehold over the over the nation and push for their private interests over the interests of society as a whole um, so there, that's what happens. So that's kind of reaches us to our climax of, of the story in which the people who tried to fight against the overpriced of magic services find themselves even worse off because now magic services are basically can be charged. You can charge monopoly prices for them. And then this law, variants of these laws get spread. And this is very prescient on Heinlein's part um, where we see now where things that can't get passed at the national level get passed at the state level and actually quite rapidly often, right? Like we see that with abortion bans or right-to-work laws in today where these things are not going to get passed nationally. They never would um, the way government works here. But in state government where, you know, people are less likely to vote for their local representatives, it's easier to get people of a certain political persuasion into those positions and they can gerrymander and make it worse. It's a little bit more of a wild west in state governments. And, and that allows a lot of bills to get passed pretty quickly there that, again, never would get passed nationally. And it goes under the radar, right? So that's the thing with this law. It's like totally under the radar. Our, our, our narrator is aware of it, but most of society is just kind of living their life as this happens. It's not news. So there's a story here, I think, also about, about power and media and how politics functions. And, and I think it's, it's a good story in that sense, too. So um, what happens next? Well, Archie, Miss Jennings, and the other characters decide to go to the half-world. So this is like kind of the underworld. This is the realm of magic. And I will give Heinlein credit here because up to this point, I was still thinking he's not really following the rules of magic in a sci-fi story. I guess you could just call this a fantasy story, but it doesn't read like that. It doesn't feel like that. It does feel like a story about technology. And he didn't seem to be following the rules of this by, by just having magic be there uh, and it seemingly being understood, but still in the realm of magic. But he sort of addresses this when he gets to the half world where he talks explicitly about the natural laws being circumvented by magic. And we see there's kind of another realm in which magic seems to spring from. And I think it's fine. It, it works okay. It does solve this question, I think, at least on the surface. If, if Heinlein could explore this world a little bit more, I think that'd be a really interesting thing to see, to see what he could do with the rules and the line between magic and technology. And that's really what I like to see is like how technology could challenge magic in a way, instead of magic being the challenge to, to technology. Um, now, what's on our hero's side here? Well, one fact seems to be on the hero's side, and that is they might be able to confront Ditworth through like the laws and traditions of the underworld. That's part of it. And the other is that they have white magic on their side through this Mrs. Miss, Miss Jennings, where that always defeats dark magic because dark magic is the absence of light or whatever. So it's that old kind of cliche about white and dark magic, light and dark magic that fantasy writers always use. But okay, so that's their weapons when they go down there. And they essentially confront the, the, the half world, which, which is essentially just hell. And they, they literally meet the devil and confront the devil. And they say, we need to get this Ditworth guy. Um, and again, like the laws on land, 
the laws of government can't stop them because it's it's in place. Magic Inc. is an all-powerful monopoly now. But the laws of the half-world <clears throat> allow a bit of negotiation here, right? So they go down, and, and, and the devil, in the form of, like, old Nick, is able to, and they go down in costume, and Miss Jennings comes down as, like, her younger, hot self, which is kind of fun, and then our narrator kind of is all hot and bothered by her and, and, and attracted to her and even falls in love with her, it seems. But that doesn't go anywhere. It's, I think Heinlein is very good about how he deals with that. They kind of become a platonic friendship, but he sees her in a new way. She's compared to like the statue of, of, Diana, of, of Diana. I don't know which one he's referring to, but you know, Diana's a, Diana's a looker. They go down and, and basically he's like, well, I have to organize all the demons. And then you can like look at them and find out who Dipworth is. And then we, he, then we can like deal with it then. And so they finally do track him down. It takes a long time and the whole legions of hell have to be assembled for this. And they finally track down Dipworth. And then this is where it kind of gets deus ex machina-ish in a way is where um, there's like an FBI undercover agent in the half world and they help our heroes to subdue Ditworth. He has to face uh, um, white magic and, and he gets defeated. He gets defeated by white magic and this forces him to like be punished, not for much this crimes on earth because that doesn't matter. That's not really what they care about. But him being defeated by white magic is is a blight on them. And he gets imprisoned, put away. And this then, um, then the FBI agent, uh, you know, reveals himself. And and they leave they leave hell. And that's apparently enough to to break down the laws. I think he kind of glosses over how the actual laws get undone because they're in place they're legally there but i think heinlein just sort of says well over time those laws went away and things went back to normal and then the ending of the story is basically some meditation on the relationship between jenny miss jennings and 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 archie our our main character so um that's the essential story we have it's very long by the way it's like it's basically like a novel It's, it's it's a short novel i think the audiobook was like four hours long and there's obviously a lot going on on here, but I think the heart of it is like about productive technologies and new productive technologies coming in and replacing old traditional forms of production. Uh, and basically, it's like about mass production in a lot of ways, because the magicians are able to like mass produce things that are disposable because they can produce be produced so easily and that they just take over the market for traditional production. Only certain certain types of industries can hold out like uh, Archie's because it works with metal. That's the only, that's the exception to the rule, but by and large magicians are going to be in power. And I don't think the story, the way it kind of just uh, is resolved at the end through like a battle in hell between white magic and dark magic doesn't really deal with the fact that white magic and dark magic doesn't matter in the state legislatures and the laws. And I don't see why magic Inc. can't continue to kind of live on and continue to have its power. Um, so I don't 
you know, Ditworth, the, the villain, gets imprisoned. Um, and, you know, and everything kind of ends up happy. But I just don't think Heinlein did enough just work on this aspect of it. Because why would, you know, once Powers grabbed, but, you know, Ditworth doesn't seem to be the indispensable leader of Magic Inc. Magic Inc. seems much more of a crypto kind of organization. Right. It's, it's a corporation. It probably has many middle managers and some managers just like the hell has all the hierarchy. Right. So what does it matter if Ditworth is out of the picture? He doesn't seem to be the only one who benefits from this. You have a whole class of magicians on Earth who benefit immensely from this law. So I think that's maybe one of the weaker aspects of the story is it just is is ended kind of quickly with a nice little bow. And and and, and it. That's fine. I actually, I don't like the magic stuff so much. I like more the story. I was more involved in the story when it was a political drama or a tension between like like a union that's essentially going to have so much power that they can just like claim any price um, they, they want. All right. So I guess that's my main thoughts about uh, Magic Inc. by Robert A. Heinlein. I think it's worth checking out. I think there's a lot of thematically rich areas in this story and it's interesting as an as an exploration in fantasy before Heinlein you know he's much more known as a science fiction writer but there's a lot of fantastical elements in a lot of his stories like uh what am I thinking of the the one with the brain swap the let us fear no evil or whatever he's he's comfortable with that too even though he's firmly in the science fiction area and I think this is a really interesting exploration of a theme that we will see later on in fiction which is like trying to make not try to normalize magic and make magic institutionalized and something normalized in society and uh, he certainly has a pretty good attempt here at that so um, that's it for now so uh, I think next time we'll look at universe uh, and look at the the 1941 the pre-world war II uh, uh, future history stories first and then we'll come back and we'll clean up any other stories that, that are there. So I look forward to that and I will see you next time.